Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 1543, Portuguese merchants became the first Europeans to reach Japan. The country they had stumbled across was torn apart by an internecine war, which provided a golden opportunity for Portuguese trade. Jesuits followed in the hope of converting the Japanese to Christianity. Alessandro Valiano was among them, and despite thinking them barbarians, he was impressed by what he found. The people on these lands have interests in literature, if they were Christians and live peaceful, wisdom would flourish here. The language is not that difficult to understand. And even if it was difficult, we have already plenty of things written by God which satisfy those who want to listen. But Europeans would not stay long in Japan. After a century of civil war, changes in the way that Japan was ruled from around 1600 meant that the country effectively closed to the outside world. Under the new shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu, the class system rigidified, and from the 1640s onwards, Japan's brilliant and unique culture flourished in isolation. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, we're navigating the fascinating, floating world of 17th century Japan. I'm delighted to be joined today from Japan by Professor Timon Screech, who is Professor of the History of Art at SOAS, the University of London, and a Fellow of the British Academy. And he's the author of some dozen books on the art and culture of Japan's Edo period, also known as the Tokugawa Shogunate. His most recent books, both of which came out in 2020, are The Shogun's Silver Telescope, God, Art and Money in the English Quest for Japan, 1600 to 1625, and Tokyo Before Tokyo, Power and Magic in the Shogun's City of Edo. So he is the perfect person to be talking about this period with. And I suppose where we need to start, Taiman, is thinking about how the Tokugawa rose. So Japan fell into an almost 100-year civil war, which is almost impossible to imagine 100 years of civil war. Everything was destroyed. And don't forget, the Japanese have amazingly good swords. And although a rather peace-loving country today, for much of its history, Japan has been a pretty warlike place. So the troubles began, as so often happens, with a succession dispute within the royal family or in Japan we always call them the imperial family. And it grew out of hand and different factions called in regional thugs and warrior groups to defend them. And then the whole city of Kyoto was burnt down and things 
fell apart. And that happened at the very end of the 15th century, so 1480s and 90s. And it continued throughout the entire 16th century, in the middle of which what should happen but the Portuguese turned up with missionaries and with guns and cannons and then said, well, you know, convert and we'll give you guns. So the European presence prolonged Japan's civil wars. And they finally came to an end sort of about, well, 1600 is a nice, easy, memorable date, at an enormous battle, kind of cataclysmic battle. On the one side was a warrior called Tokugawa Ieyasu, and he won thanks to half of his enemies changing sides midway through the battle. So when you hear about the where the samurai's death, and it's not true like anywhere else, most people don't want to die. And if they see things are going against them, they change sides. So Ieyasu won a resounding victory, and he sort of mulled what he should do next. It was clear that the world was going to change. And what he did is he asked or told the emperor, who had survived throughout the civil war, living in very insalubrious accommodations, he asked the emperor in return for building a beautiful palace and in restoring his rights to take the title of shogun. And Japan had been ruled by shoguns for hundreds of years already, but the last shogunate had lapsed during those civil wars. So the post was vacant. And the emperor said, it's a fair deal, let's do that. But there's a slight problem, which is that you can only be shogun if you're a member of one of the ancient warlord families, which the Tokugawa, technically speaking, weren't. But then some enterprising herald type person came forward with a lost family tree, proving that the Tokugawa were entitled to the shogunate and all was well, and they were installed in 1603. So the real beginning of Japan's early modern or Tokugawa period or Edo period is 1603. And we call it the Edo period because mostly, naturally, shoguns or anyone else ruled from the capital, which was Kyoto. But the Tokugawa family decided to rule from their old power base, 500 kilometers away to the east. And that area was a little town called Edo, E-D-O. And so they ruled from it. And hence we call it the Edo period, lasted right through for more than a dozen generations of shogun to 1868, when they were replaced and the imperial family basically took over in a kind of, I don't know whether you call it a coup d'etat or whatever it was, but in any case, they took over and became a Western-style ruler modeled actually on the German pattern. And that's the family that's still there as Emperor of Japan now four generations later. So the Edo period is basically 1603 to 18. 68. And when the shoguns were finally abolished and the Western Star monarchy came to power, in those days, of course, it's steamships and railways and Kyoto is an inland town. It didn't suit. So the emperor simply moved up to Edo, the shogun's center, and declared that the new capital, but renamed it as Tokyo. So it's very neat, actually, isn't it? It helps us, <laughs> it helps us give a name to this period. Yes, it's very neat. And Kyoto isn't a name. Kyoto just simply means the capital. It's not a name. But when Edo became the real capital, Kyoto was turned into a proper name, and therefore you spell it with a capital K, Kyoto. And To means East, so Tokyo just simply means the Eastern capital. Aha. I love that sort of etymology. So we're talking about a new era under the Tokugawa, so first of all, Ayasu, and then presumably his successors. And in terms of the society in which they lived, 
I'm aware that some of those who had been fighting for power in the 16th century had risen from quite lowly origins, but that actually maybe there's a sense of the hierarchy becoming more strict and harder to navigate through after this period. Yes. What I just referred to as the civil wars of the 16th century, that's, of course, our modern English description of them. They called them the period of those below overthrowing those above, uh, which is a bit more euphonic if you say that in Japanese. And so that's what had happened. And it was literally revolution, right? Revolution means those below overturning those above. So above all, what people wanted was peace. And I'm sure that anyone living today in Iraq or Yemen, you can understand that at first you want peace. And after that, let's think about other things. So there's a tolerance, I suppose, of a fairly forceful shogunate that essentially said, we will guarantee peace in return for you accepting our overlordship. The emperor brought into it, the emperor declared them shoguns, therefore there's no issue about legitimacy. If the emperor says they're shoguns, then they are. And so many of the regional warriors also thought, let's pack it in. Let's say the shogun is our notional overlord. And in terms of that, the shogun let most of the significant warriors retain their lands. Of course, he killed off his enemies and he reparceled out land to his loyalists. But many of the old military families that had been fighting for 100 years and more were allowed to maintain their holdings so long as they declared that the shogunate was their overlord. And one of the things that may have made it to Britain or the US is the idea, of course, of the samurai famous warriors. So they are the military warriors that you're talking about in this period. Yes. One of the ways in which peace was enforced was an official class system, which was borrowed from continental Chinese and Korean practice. It wasn't invented in Japan, which is there are four social classes. Of course, the top are what were called the gentlemen. That's a Chinese way of thinking about it, because China on the whole has not been a military country, whereas Japan has been ruled by the military. So what Chinese call gentlemen, the Japanese call warriors. And beneath them are farmers, because the farmers produce what we all need. And beneath the farmers are the artisans, because they produce secondary materials. And beneath them are the merchants, because the merchants do nothing. Think about City of London. All they do is circulate other people's money and get rich out of it. It's not fair. Only the gentlemen, or that's to say the military, what today we call the samurai, were allowed to carry arms. And they always walked down the street with two swords, one long and one short, tucked into their sash. And you knew exactly who they were and you made sure you cleared the path and let them through. Over time, of course, peace became established and the samurai didn't even need to fight and there was nobody to fight anyway. So they became sort of bureaucrats and tax collectors and administrators for the various warlords. They probably were about 7% of the population. So it's way bigger than aristocracy, but it's not like half the country was samurai. It's less than 10%. And then, of course, the other thing that happened, as you can well imagine, is that the peasants got exploited and despite their notional upper class, they became poor, and the merchants exploited them and became rich, so that the social classes and financial wherewithal soon separated. And this gave rise to social friction, but also kind of complex issues about propriety and reticence within spending and vulgarity of overspending, a lot of social concerns about this world that had been set up in 1603. By the time you get to about 1700 or about 1800, it doesn't work anymore. 
you may say if it just doesn't work anymore, why not change it? The problem was that the first shogun had been deified. And so anything that he had established was extremely difficult to unpick and change according to changing circumstances. And this is one of the problems that the Edo period had with a kind of sclerotic system with a very dynamic financial economy. In terms of these different classes, what did that mean in practice? I mean, do we see a great culture of deference between the different classes in behaviour? Yes. One issue was that the samurai, in order to stop them carving out their own territories and bullying people, they mostly had to live in the cities. So I mentioned these warlords. Basically, they get endorsed by the shogun. There's about 300 of them. So it's quite a lot. And each of these warlords is responsible for their own samurai banned and almost all cases the warlords demand the samurai come and live in their castle town so that they can work as functionaries and they can't maraud and steal things so samurai are an urban group and of necessity most merchants are urban too i mean you're not going to make a lot of money in a village so merchants flock to the city so you get the cities where wealthy merchants and samurai who fancy themselves but may not actually be very rich are living side by side And the merchants have to show deference to the samurai in public. But the samurai often need the merchants, make loans that they may intend never to repay. Or the standard practice, of course, you marry some wealthy daughter. The classes weren't really supposed to marry into each other and they were notionally fixed. But it did happen that a poor samurai might marry a woman who could bring some money in the dowry. But these things happened under the counter sort of way. It wasn't monogamous so that a samurai person might take as a secondary wife a woman that can bring in some money, even though his class might require him to marry a samurai's daughter as his principal wife. But this is on the surface. And they always had what they call doing things internally. That's to say, when the rules are not needed to be enforced, then you don't enforce them. And there's one particular government minister who, very powerful figure, about 1800, so 200 years into the period, and he had a very nice metaphor. He says, when you've had your bento out of your box at lunchtime, you're going to want to clean it. And if you clean right into the corners to get the dirt out, you'll break the box apart. So let dirt linger in the corners. Don't intrude into people's lives too much. The law may say one thing, but you don't have to always enforce it. So Tokugawa legislation, if you look at it, seems incredibly draconian. People are being executed for this, that, and other, but actually it hardly ever happened. There's a great tendency of the government shows its benevolence to people and lets you off the fine or with a one-year exile to the provinces, something like that. So that the way that the system dealt with the changing social circumstances, which had made it no longer a country that had just emerged from war, and it turned it into a flourishing market economy, the government shows lenience. Lenience was a very important term in their legal consciousness. And, and things kind of did okay. Now, it might also have happened that the last thing a rich merchant wanted to do was to become a samurai. <laughs> Because then you have a lord you've got to grovel in front of and people tell you that it's vulgar to spend lots of money on fancy clothes and you have to go out practicing with your sword in cold weather. So that in fact, you get the opposite sometimes of samurai petitioning their lords to be able to surrender their status and go off and become a merchant. That's so interesting and such an important thing to remember that when we look at these laws which seem fearsome, that quite often these are the prescriptive texts that don't necessarily manifest themselves in practice and that we can get the wrong idea if we take these things at face value. Yes, 
you know, if you're studying Western history, of course, court cases and things and legislation are key to understanding how society worked. But in Japan, on the whole, the government doesn't want things to go to court because then they have a record and it's a precedent. So the government would much rather things were resolved out of court. And if, for example, if, you know, your neighbours killed your cat or, you know, stolen something, you go to the town hall and you register a vendetta. And so long as it is between you and the other person and it's registered, that's okay. You resolve it together. The government also had a very fundamental code, which was both parts of a dispute are at fault. If you and your neighbour can't resolve the fact that they have nicked your cat, right, or poisoned your well, or stolen your washing, if you two can't resolve that together, then it will go to court and you will both be punished because you've been equally responsible for breaking the peace. So there's a huge issue, which you may say survives in Japan today, of people always trying to resolve things at a personal level without it escalating into an actual court case. But if it did go to a court case and you had failed to do the things that a sensible person would do to avoid that happening, then of course you could expect something quite serious to happen to you. But it still might be less serious than the legislation allowed the government to impose on you. That's a fascinating emphasis on reconciliation and on responsibility. And it rings so many bells for me in the period that I work on. So in England in the 16th century, you can have sumptuary laws who can wear what, depending on their rank, but those aren't often enforced either. They look fearsome and they're not enforced. But also just the way that when it comes to things like witchcraft trials, actually, whether they are tried or not depends on the attitude of the authority towards evidence. And so if the authorities put the emphasis on those accusing and say it has to be proved that you're telling the truth in a little town in Germany they torture those who bring accusations then that you're less likely to have cases so there are some parallels what about those who are outcast those who are not in one of those four classes yes there are people who fall out of the system at both ends so the nicer option of course is to be above the system which would be the royal family or the imperial family which is a fairly extended family, obviously, and also clergy, priests and monks and nuns. And it's important for clergy to be outside the class system because you often can't really meet people outside your own class in a formal setting. So that a monk needs to be able to talk to a farmer or even to a lord, so they're external to it. And there's some other people like geomancers and sometimes some physicians are outside the system too. But the other end is much less pleasant, which is people who are below the system and they were hereditary outcasts that were forced to live in certain areas. They were referred to as animals. Literally, the term for them was non-people. And they worked in death-related activities, which was mostly executions and slaughtering of animals and leather work. Animals were virtually not slaughtered for food. It was considered half a sin and it's half an extravagance to kill and eat an animal that you could use. You can kill animals you can't use, and of course you can kill rabbits and things if you want to eat those, that's no problem. But horses and oxen die, and then you tan the hides. So leather working was something that also outcasts were forced to do. People didn't wear leather that much, nor did they have leather shoes, but leather, of course, was used for all kinds of things. Actually, it might be interesting to think a little bit about what people did wear. So not leather, but what are they wearing? The standard thing that grows and that you could therefore make clothing out is hemp, flax. So it's 
cool in summer, and Japan has extremely torrid summers. I mean, probably it's worse today than it was then because of obviously global warming. But here I'm in Tokyo, and today was already 30 degrees in mid-May, and it can easily get up to 40. So for much of the year, wearing linen effectively is very nice. In winter, it's not nice because they also have quite cold winters, so you would need to wear layers of it. Then when the Portuguese arrived not long after that, the Dutch and the English turned up, and the English, wherever they travel in the world, they always sell wool. So then you start to get wool arriving. Well, Japanese didn't like wool very much because it was too prickly on the skin, but like a pullover, you wear it over the top of a shirt. And the Europeans, all of them, English, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, they also all brought in Indian cotton. So Indian cotton becomes very popular and also can be grown locally. They couldn't make wool locally because there are no Japanese sheep. They didn't have sheep. So cotton becomes significant in the Edo period. But above all, what people wanted was silk. And silk is the beautiful material. It can be dyed and it can be embroidered. It's very light. It's very cool. It's also fairly warm. It's quite difficult to wash. Therefore, it immediately has a high status. And of course, it was expensive because although Japan could make silk, the best silk came from China. So it was an imported and expensive product. And some sumptuary laws forbade silk to anyone other than the samurai class. And then some lords would forbid silk to their own samurai attendants because they didn't want them appearing too fancy when they're supposed to be hardened warriors. So there were the main things. And the general costume was the antecedent of the modern day kimono. That's to say, it's basically what we would think of as a bathrobe tied with a sash. And there are variants of it, but throughout the whole Edo period, pretty much that's what people war. So the difference between classes in terms of dress was about how good the material was, not the cut. If you think of, you know, Elizabeth I with all her frills and ruffles and then a peasant, their cuts are totally different. But in Japan, there would be not such a distinction of cut, but there would be a distinction of textile that was used and the extent to which the textile has been finished with embroidery and dyeing and such like. Now, one big distinction that did occur in dress, though, was do you wear this kimono bath robe type thing, or do you wear trousers? Because trousers, think about it all across the world, why do men wear trousers and why do men not let women wear trousers? Because trousers allow you to ride a horse. And if you can ride a horse, you can go places and you can escape control and you can evade, you can go off and you can catch up with people. And you... So of course the samurai wore, it's often referred to as a trouser skirt. It's not tight on your trousers, on your legs, like a modern day trousers. It looks like a kimono effectively, but it actually is divided in the middle. So that would demarcate somebody as a samurai if they were wearing that. Can you tell me a bit more about the treatment of women in this culture? Within Japanese history, or perhaps within world history, the lot of a woman in the Edo period was not as bad as some. Women could, for example, initiate divorce. They could not own property as such, but they did have their dowry, which they retained. A woman's dowry usually didn't come in the form of money because the husband will take it. <laughs> a woman's dowry usually came in the form of textiles. Uh, so she would come with all her kimonos, which would last for life. And if push came to the shove, she could liquidate those and she would have money to go off and do something else. Fundamentally speaking, women were under the control of their husbands. And they might then, as widows, be under the control of their sons. They would have to marry who their parents told them to marry. 
but hopefully their parents didn't want them to be miserable, so they would marry them off to somebody that they thought their daughter would get on with. And women worked. If you were a peasant woman, of course, you worked in the fields as much as your husband did. If you were a merchant class woman, you worked in the shop, you made umbrellas alongside your husband, etc. And if women work, it means they may not keep the money that they earn, it may be taken by the husbands, but it means that they leave the house. And you certainly don't get women stuck indoors, unable to go out and meet people. Female socialization was expected. For example, the Kabuki theatre was the great social pastime, like the theatre was for 18th century Londoners, and absolutely no prohibition on women going to the theatre. You mentioned the theatre. What other activities are there in terms of leisure? Women read so that literacy is the same, probably, amongst women and men. There would be some texts that weren't ladylike, very heavy morality and political things, but a woman should be able to read and therefore that opened to her the imagination, right? Once you can read, you read fantasies, you read love tales, and they had a huge publishing industry with also lending libraries. So peddlers would go to houses with a list of books available and madam might like this one next time, right? And they come around with them. You don't have to buy them. And as far as we can tell, no husband was there telling what she could borrow from the library and what she couldn't. And these did include some quite racy volumes and Mills and Boone type things, but even more extreme. Erotica, for example, was there. Fantasies about women eloping with their loved one and leaving the husband behind and such things. So it may not have happened in reality, but like the Kabuki Theatre, which was a theatre of townsperson fantasy, really. The Kabuki Theatre is filled with stories of children running off with the lovers that their parents don't approve of and clever merchant getting his own against a stupid samurai, Barbara of several kind of stories. And you get that in fiction too. Women could go off and socialise, they could drink, but there was a sort of expectation that women should be home after dark. So whereas men might linger in drinking establishments all through the night and, you know, roll in first thing in the morning, that would have been distinctly improper. I mean, probably a woman could have done it, but had she done it, she would have then had to suffer the fact that she would have been classed as an improper person. I think it's fascinating that there's this freedom of imagination. But talking of erotica, I'd like to talk more in a moment about the red light districts of Edo and Japan's so-called floating world. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected... And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm talking to Professor Timon Screech, about the absolutely fascinating world of Japan in the 17th century under the Tokugawa shogunate. Taiman, I know you've done a lot of work on the red light districts of Edo, and obviously life for women in that world was rather different from what we've just been talking about. Yes, so the floating world, they call it. I mean, the world is a fixed place and we have our hierarchies and we try to get on in life and get our children married off and hopefully make some money and be proper. And that's the fixed world. But they also called the world of entertainment and irresponsibility and fun, the floating world. And they said the floating world was like a coin. One side of the coin is the world of kabuki, where you pay your money, you turn up and you watch a play about fantasies and of course while you're at the kabuki theater you can chat to the pretty girl or pretty man in the next box to you and people formed liaisons at the theater too the other side of the coin was the red light districts and it's important to understand what they were because of course they were fundamentally prostitution districts they were places where men went to pay for the company of women and that company might have been sexual, probably it often was sexual, but there also was a kind of casual fraternization that we think of as part of the normal way in which we make friendships. But that was not available. It was difficult to make friends with somebody who was not of your class. And it was difficult to find a way to be friends with somebody that wasn't your family or your work associate. I mean, where would you meet them? So the floating world is also floating because people are floating around and meeting each other. And in many societies, women floating around and meeting each other raises eyebrows. Men floating around and meeting each other is deemed to be okay. And the women the men float around and meet are then declared to be not very good women, waitresses, and of course, also sex workers. The floating world, therefore, was a place of irresponsible, spendthrift behavior, which happened in the night hours. And it was tolerated by the government because they thought this is the best way to prevent people being revolutionary in the daytime, right? Let off steam at night. The same th- letting off steam might be our modern day post-industrial revolution metaphor. Once again, they said, you don't break the corners of the box, let dirt linger there. So most cities had a officially designated, they called it the stockade, it had fence around it. And you went there at night and you left it in the morning and you didn't attempt to go in the daytime. And what happened there at night was not supposed to affect what happened in the city in the daytime. I should probably also say a word about sex work, because coming from the Abrahamic 
religions, there's a notion that selling your body is a different sort of proposition from selling your mind or selling your body to build a road or plow a field. But that consciousness was simply absent in East Asia. Of course, it's not very nice to be a sex worker because it's very intimate what you're selling, but it's probably worse to build a road or to work in a mine or to starve to death because your farm doesn't yield enough. So the lot of the sex worker often translated into English as the courtesan to avoid the overtones of prostitution. It was regarded as a tragic situation because the problem with the sex worker is you have to spend the whole time lying. The men want to hear that you like them and you probably don't. It's the insincerity that is forced upon the product courtesan, which makes her life sad. And it's exactly the same with an actor, right? Actors can make us cry talking nonsense, right? And that is not the way the world should be. You should only cry when you listen to somebody who tells you something that's really true, or you should only be elated by hearing news which is really true. So the floating world was a place of insincerity. That's part of what its floatingness was. It was kind of like a buffer against reality, right? The floating world was not supposed to impinge. So the women that were indentured to work as waitresses, musicians, and courtesans were forced to reside within that area for the period of their contract. They're not slaves. They have entered into a contract to work there for a certain time. And the end of their contract, of course, many of them suffered sexually transmitted diseases and all kinds of epidemics and died. But if you got out, you entered into normal society again and it was not a stigma. That's utterly fascinating. It might even enhance your chances because many of the women that had entered into sex work, obviously they were impoverished circumstances. And if you got the chance to work in a halfway decent bordello, you learnt to speak properly and you met some men that could talk, <laughs> hopefully, and you maybe got treated to nice dinners sometimes and you know you learnt repartee and things so that sometimes it regarded as a kind of least worst option for women that didn't have many other options in life. There was also male prostitution. Male prostitution though is what we today would consider paedophilia that boys was expected to leave that walk of life about the age of 15 or 16 and then they would go off and marry. Which I suppose raises the question of their attitude towards homosexual relationships later in life. Is it only acceptable in that sort of context of the floating world and boys? Of course, it's terribly hard to know what really happened. We can know what stories were told by people who thought it was a terrible thing, and we can know what stories were told by people who thought it was a wonderful thing. There's a very famous book called The Great Mirror of Male Love. It's available in English translation, written about 1680, which is a history of male-male sexual relations in Japan. Mostly, it is like Greece, right? You have an older man who patronises a boy, and hopefully he's respectable and nice to the boy and doesn't abuse him, obviously abuses part of it, but within the terms of the engagement. And the boy might you know, feel that at the end of a few years of this, he's benefited from it. But it shouldn't happen later in life. And certainly the penetrator and the penetrated should not swap roles. If it's not too indelicate to say this in your program, one of the shoguns caused a big problem by liking to be penetrated. And the shogun can penetrate whatever he wants, man, woman, boy, cow, but he should always be the active partner. And this came to a bit of an issue in his case, and eventually he was forced to change. But so that was sort of the deal. So when a boy becomes a man, uh, he had, would have to take the active role or else it would be regarded as very strange. Right. So your sexual role has got to represent your power in society. The active role is for the powerful. 
Yes. I mean, who knows what happened behind closed doors and wasn't recorded, but properly speaking, yes. Also, of course, this happens in many other cultures too, that because the priesthood is male, that's a place in which male-male love happens, but also was expected in the Japanese case and actually endorsed because the problem about clerical celibacy was not about ejaculation as it might be in the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't care about that. What they cared about was that you would create karmic links, right? If you sleep with somebody in a way that is emotionally engaged rather than you just pay them to do it, then you build up a karmic link. And if you have a child, then you have a karmic link. And karma is the thing that stops you from eventually leaving this world with a still mind. If you die worrying about your widow and your debts and your house and your children, then you will be compelled back into this world again and you will not be able to leave. Monks are the people who are supposed to be able to leave this world, so they must not have commitments. The assumption was that if monks sleep with each other, they're not going to care for each other that much. It's just going to be about ejaculation. And so who cares? So you've touched on priests and monks and religion there. This is a society in which you've got Christianity being introduced and tempted conversions, and actually quite a lot of people convert, don't they? And also, I suppose, Buddhism and Shinto. Could you build up a picture for us of the religious world at this time? Yes. What's usually said is that Shinto is the historic ancestral religion of Japan and that Buddhism arrived and changed things. And the honest truth is we have no idea because Buddhism introduced writing to Japan. So anything that happened before the arrival of Buddhism, we don't know. And that was in the 6th century that Buddhism arrived. So it's a long time ago by our Edo period. Probably before Buddhism arrived, the Japanese were doing what primitive people do everywhere. They worship the stars, they worship the trees, they worship waterfall, they worship fire. And probably these things happened. And, and Buddhism then arrives. But Buddhism is complex philosophical conception because what it really is is about accepting this world as a place of vanity and suffering and the desire to get out of it. But you don't get out of it to a beautiful heaven like you might do in Christianity or Islam. You get out of it into a state of vacancy. Right? I mean, that's kind of a hard sell. right? So in many places, Buddhism latches on to other local divinities. And you get this in Myanmar today, you get it in China. If you go to a Chinese Buddhist temple, there's piles of gods in there that have nothing to do with Buddhism. So Japanese Buddhism built itself into possibly pre-existing locally believed divinities, which were never an organized creed. They were just what people in the countryside areas did. And subsequently, academics kind of said, oh, these things are called Shinto. Shinto means the ways of the gods. There are many, many, many gods out there. Different villages have some person they say is their god, and they worship in different ways, and all those different ways were accepted as Shinto. And the Buddhist monks were very sensibly said, sure, it makes a lot of sense. Those gods that you worship are like us. They are also trying to escape this terrible world of suffering. And so many representations of Shinto gods, if you look at a sculpture of a Shinto god, often they are in the act of listening to Buddhist preaching. Right? They also want to escape from the sufferings that they encounter as gods. Of course, they're not like Father Almighty of Christianity. These are little gods that look after villages and waterfalls, right? They are suffering too. The other structure that happened is that because Buddhas are 
extinct, right? They've succeeded in leaving this world and they're not coming back. Therefore, they can't sort of do a miracle for you. They can't cure your toothache. So what the Buddhist said is, oh, well, the Buddhas work through an agency of the gods because the gods are in this world. And the term for that, of course, is a term that your listeners probably know about from video games, avatar. The avatar is a Buddhist term. It is an emanation of some external thing which you can't access appearing in an emanated form in this world. And so many Shinto gods were regarded as messenger type people of the Buddhas. And that persisted throughout almost all Japanese history until the modern day monarchy is set up in the middle of the 19th century, where Buddhism is declared to be magical and old fashioned and not compatible with modernity. And Buddhism is subject to horrendous violence and destruction in Japan, but they want to have some kind of religion. So modern day Shinto is kind of invented at that time. And we have a similar pattern, I suppose, of suffering that is carried out against Christians in the 17th century. After the Portuguese have arrived in the 1540s and the Jesuits arrived and started converting people, that's all very well for a while, but a decision is made in the 17th century that actually they've had enough of them. Yes, the Christians turn up and they sell guns to people and they don't exactly look like people of peace. And the other thing the Christians do, of course, is that they do believe that there's only one God. And if that's the case, then all other gods must be wrong. Japan had never had this attitude, but in fact, hardly anyone in the world, pretty much Christianity and Islam are the only religions that think that they've got it right. And the Jews, I suppose, perhaps. Well, there are religions that think it's right for their ethnic group. But Christianity and Islam are rather unusual in that they think that they're right and that everyone in the whole world damn well ought to believe it too, right? So the Christians turn up and they start burning down Buddhist temples and trying to persuade Buddhist priests, talk them out of their mistaken ways and things. So this is what's problematic. Of course, the other problem is that Christianity is overridingly associated with Portugal, but don't forget that Portugal at that point was under the crown of Spain, and the Japanese were very well aware of the Philippines and Mexico, and they thought that Spain probably couldn't actually conquer and destroy Japan because the Japanese are pretty strong and it's a very long way from Spain. But they thought, possibly not without reason, that given the chance, King of Spain wouldn't mind picking off a few outlying Japanese islands for his own empire. So for a whole range of reasons, political, theological, Christianity is declared illegal. Initially, they expel all the priests. Most of the priests were Westerners because there'd been a fair amount of racism and they hadn't let many Japanese even become priests. But all the priests were expelled and the shoguns said, well, now you can worship without the foreign priests. But of course, in Roman Catholicism, you need a priest. It's not like Protestantism. So it didn't work. And that meant, of course, you get underground priests as happened in England during the recusancy. And in the end, the decision is that these people are just going to have to convert back to Buddhism or flee. And many of them flee. But to be absolutely honest with you, most of them converted back and we honestly don't know what the Christians even thought they were doing by embracing Christianity in the first place because there's some pretty complex doctrines and all the priests operating Japan some of them were there a long time and they got to speak pretty decent Japanese but most of the priests they're trying to explain in Portuguese to Japanese peasants that don't even have much of a consciousness of literacy in Japanese at this point what's going on so there was a huge scope for confusion. Most Japanese referred to Christianity as another class of Buddhism. So there's a lot of misunderstandings. And part of the bringing of peace and the settling down of the country and the establishment of commerce and markets that the Tokugawa wanted to do in the early 17th century, 
part of that process was to force everyone to register at a temple. It's a little bit like the English parish system. You had to register at a temple and you could not register at a church. So everyone, therefore, had to sign up to Buddhism in some way or another. Now, there were martyrdoms and they were pretty nasty. But on the whole, most Japanese Christians, they would have said they're going back to being another kind of Buddhist. I can see that it would have been difficult to know what people thought they were signing up to and that lack of clarity about it. But I'm really struck by the fact that we do have five or six thousand people who were executed in this early 17th century as Christians, as well as those who return to Shinto or Buddhism in this case, or who are the hidden Christians, as they're referred to. I mean, there are obviously people who are willing to suffer for this faith. Yes, I don't know the numbers and I don't know how trustworthy the numbers are, if you could even... Right. find them. Most of our information comes from Christian sources themselves. And the Jesuits thought Japan was going to be a new Christian country. And when they're expelled, they're deeply hurt by that experience and they have to find justifications for it. And so bloodbath and all their flock you know, faithful to the end. And, the, and there were some people who liked that. But how many we honestly can't say. One should also remember that, after all, the civil wars are fairly recently ended by this point, during which the loss of life had been so enormous. There'd also been plenty of Buddhist warriors during the Civil War period too. So dying for what you believed in was something that people have been conditioned over a number of generations to accept. And people died for Christianity, people died for other things too. But that does not continue. Christianity effectively disappears. And you refer to hidden Christians, and indeed there were some people in very remote outlying areas that held on to something that they believed in, some ancestral devotion with magical spells and things that were passed on. Christianity was made legal in Japan again in the mid-19th century. These people appeared from some local villages. Very startling and interesting story. But what they believed at that point is quite crazy. It would not be Christianity by the way we normally understand it. Mm-hmm. And you raised the question of how we know what we know, which seems to be a particular challenge. I mean, am I right in understanding that it was forbidden to write down history in early Tokugawa Japan and so that we don't have the kind of contemporary chronicles that we might normally rely on to know about what was going on. Up to a point, that's true, yes. So there's some areas which you can't talk about. For example, the Tokugawa are very sensitive about their rise to power. Not only that battle in 1600 where some of their people changed sides, but of course any warriors betrayed people along the way. So any talk about that was pretty much taboo. You could write histories of earlier times. You could write histories of your village, your family line. If you were an umbrella maker, you could write about the history of umbrella making, but you couldn't sort of write a political history. That would have been les majesty. Nobody would be stupid enough to do it. They did, though, have a big distinction between published materials and handwritten materials. So there's a publishing guild and they would self-police and they would not be stupid enough to publish something that would land them in danger. But for the most part, if you just write down what you think about life on a piece of paper and keep it at home, nobody asks very much about it. Now, there's one very famous case of a kind of popular storyteller who started telling recent history, in other words, 10, 15, 20 years ago, scurrilous stories about going on in the shogun's palace and even in his harem. And he held forth about this on the street corner, gathering money. Everyone went to listen to him and it became a big problem. And he is one of the few people that was executed for recording 
facts, innuendos, stories, whatever they were. But that person's stories were actually written down and published somewhat under the counter. Today, we love to read them, although they can't really be trustworthy because a lot of it is innuendo about powerful people and their naughty goings on. Of course, people do keep records. So historians today have plenty of material to look back on. I mean, there were all kinds of financial documents, property management, intellectual history was very widely written down, ecclesiastical lineages, these things are there, but the commoners would not talk about them. They didn't even know the shogun's name. Nobody knew the shogun's name. Nobody knew the emperor's name. And some people think that's crazy, but I often remind people that most British people, although they know the queen's name very well, none of us ever use the queen's name, right? She's just the queen. And the shogun was just the shogun. So there was no sort of school modern history book that you could go to find out about things. But if you were an inquisitive, diligent person, especially if you were of the right class, or could bribe people, or could borrow books and copy them out by hand and keep them, then you could find out about things, but you'd be stupid to publicize that knowledge. Now, finally, is that people told stories about recent history in the guise of a different time period. Uh -huh. Oh, this is a story of a medieval warrior. And of course, if you could read between the lines, you knew that they were making some comment about the modern world. And I suppose one amazing set of sources that you've written a lot about is the visual arts. So tell us a bit about what we can see of this period. If you'd asked an Edo period person about painting, there was an official government school. It's called the Kano School, K-A-N-O. And the Kano School did what they called true painting. They painted the way the world was as the shogun wanted to be seen. So what they mostly paint are beautiful landscapes of happy peasants, no one being abused and ample rice harvest or beautiful screens of seasons. It's a very big thing in Japan. You have a big pair of screens, take up a whole wall and it's beauties of the four seasons across them. Not any particular place, just how lovely this world is. The Camel School also painted things that you needed such as funerary portraits, Portraiture is not very big in Japan, but everyone needed a funerary portrait. They also paint gifts for record painting, you know, how you conduct a certain ritual ought to be depicted so that you don't get it wrong. Next time you do an enthronement ceremony, right? They don't have very often, so make a picture of it so that you have uh, all the documentation there. And that's what the Canor School did. And Lord's Castles were filled with these visual expressions of virtuous, benevolent rule. But Kano School was only used for the elite. It wasn't propaganda put out to the people. It's what lords had in their own castles. Townspeople would have had pictures of a rather different kind. Big, big area is auspicious images. If you go to a Japanese or Chinese or Korean restaurant today, you'll often see their dragons and tigers and horses galloping. And what's all this about? Well, this is a vocabulary of auspiciousness. Some things indicate that the world is good and happy. And there's a whole vocabulary, you know, pomegranates indicate happiness because when you open them up, they're so filled with seeds. Or dragons, mythological beings, are said to appear when the world is good. Why don't we see dragons very often? Because the world isn't very good. But if the world was to be good, then dragons would come. Right? So if they don't come very often, well, paint them and hang them up. It's why the Emperor of China always had dragons on his clothing. 
tigers are auspicious things. They appear when the world is good, and that's why you don't see them very often. So this was something that even commoners would have in their houses. If you're poor, you have only probably a little one corner where you've got space to hang up a picture, and that's the kind of thing that you would have there. Of course, you'd also have Buddhist icons. You might have some particular divinity that you worship or a Shinto god. Shinto is less iconic, so on the whole, it would be a Buddhist form would be hung up there. Of course, you'd also have the portraits of your parents and grandparents, and they get a bit dog-eared over time, so you probably don't have many generations back because you have to bring them out for repeated funeral rituals, which happen not just at death, they go on for years. So you'd have those things too. That's sort of formal art. But what I mentioned already, the floating world, the world of pleasure and distraction, gave rise to massive output, both paintings, but also because a lot of this stuff was fairly ephemeral, prints. And today, I think everyone knows about Japanese woodblock prints, Mm -hmm. which mostly showed the kabuki theatre, the world of drunken entertainment, the courtesans of the pleasure districts and urban pleasures. Because literacy was high, for many people, visual world would also have meant book illustrations. Novels and things were illustrated. Well, think of Japanese manga today. It's much more normal there for a book to be illustrated than it might be for a book to be illustrated in the West. The visual world would also include not just paintings and prints, but textiles had designs on them, tableware had designs on them, all kinds of boxes and containers. And if you're a samurai, then your sword guard and your military apparatus all had symbolic decoration. You're painting a wonderful picture, (laughs) pun not intended. And lastly, I wanted to just touch on two things I think that many people in the West have heard of from this period, which is the haiku and the tea ceremony. Could you talk to me about those? Let me start with the tea ceremony, because that goes back a bit further. Tea was introduced to Japan from China. It wasn't indigenous and it seems to have begun being drunk by monks and scholars because it keeps you awake and it's the same with coffee right people drank coffee because it stops you from going to sleep so you can keep on bantering away in a coffee house or you can keep studying through the night but it soon spread more widely and you didn't have to drink so much of it that you had a high just a little drop and tea ceremony for some reason its origins are much debated turned into a kind of it's a little bit like the floating world because the floating world is a place you go to for fun the tea ceremony is a place where you went for a little bit more philosophical thoughtful kind of abstraction from normal life and the tea ceremony therefore also was rather outside the class system so it wouldn't matter for a samurai to turn up to a tea party with a merchant even though they might not be able to be together in the same room in a formal context. So the tea ceremony becomes a place of intellectual encounter, also because you have as much as possible beautiful cups and vessels to drink from. So it's also a place of refined aesthetic enjoyment. And quite consciously, it amounts to nothing. You don't get anything out of a tea ceremony, except that you've had a nice time with the people you were with. And on the whole, you are not supposed to use the opportunity of tea ceremony to try and ask somebody to make you alone or to intercede with you for some political advantage or if somebody might know somebody to marry your son off to. These are not supposed to be tea ceremony events. They are for a kind of contemplative mood change and they take place in a rather rustic space outside normal familiar 
architecture. So there's a slight nostalgic edge to them too, before we lived in this world of silks and imported Portuguese, this and that, and Chinese. So when we just lived in little humble huts, it was like this. So that's very simply expressed because people have spent their whole lives working on the history of the Tehuti Assembly. I don't want to be too reductive about it, but that's sort of what it was. Now, haiku is different. Haiku, of course, is a poetic form. And the word haiku is a modern expression where you take one of these poems on its own. But historically, you don't take them on their own. They're made into strings, strings of verses. So you write the haiku, which is three lines, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. And then the next link is two times seven syllables. And then somebody continues on with another one. And there's a whole range of requirements to string verses together. And sometimes people say in haiku, the third line is kind of a bit off. It doesn't carry the expectations of the first. That's because you're setting up for somebody to continue the next verse. And so linked verse parties, you could link your own verses. You could go on doing them on yourself, or you could get together and all do them together. And because the prosody, I mean, it's not difficult to write. Japanese language, by the way, falls very easily into five and seven syllable blocks. A bit like English, right? English has this thing called blank verse. It's actually pretty easy in English to train yourself to speak in 10-syllable blank verse. So that writing haiku was not difficult. Right? Writing a sonnet is difficult. You've got to get the rhymes right. You've got to get it. It's really hard. But so that haiku is kind of something that somebody, if you want to be thoughtful and artistic and go beyond the vulgar language we normally use when we're doing our business, then haiku is available to you. And you can write a haiku about whatever you like. Today, people tend to most like haiku on mundane type of topics. And the famous one is an old pond, a frog leaps in, the sound of water by the great haiku poet Bashaw, maybe the most famous. But not all haiku have to be about frogs and ponds. You can write a haiku about a beautiful palace garden or something, or a beautiful woman or beautiful man if you want to do that as well. But they're short on their own, and they can continue on for as many strings as you and the people with you have time for. We have had an amazing introduction to Tokugawa society. Thank you for indulging me in such an amazing, virtuoso introduction. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family, and do share it on social media. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.